It's that time of year when people generally start to think about cemeteries. They want to hear spooky stories. But, as I always argue, true stories are usually the best. Today I have a haunting little tale that starts in a cemetery and ends in the electric chair. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. So, after a month of horribly depressing and, frankly, mentally taxing topics, I decided to do something that was a little bit more fun. And it ended up being surprisingly more work than I thought it was going to be, just because the research... It's just a little bit different than the normal research that I do. And... I ask you to bear with me because I am going to be reading directly from newspaper articles, mainly because the language is just priceless. Now, this is a story that I inadvertently stumbled across last January when I was doing the research on people who work in cemeteries for the collaboration that I did with Ashley on the employees at Oakland Cemetery here in Atlanta. And then I followed it up with more research um, for my presentation for the Association for Gravestone Studies this year. This was a photograph that I came across, and I didn't really look too much into it at that point. But I decided that I was going to do an episode on Cemetery True Crime, possibly even two episodes. And I had every intention of doing lots of, like, quick little stories And as usual, I went down a rabbit hole. So instead of getting a bunch of little stories about Cemetery True Crime, you're going to be getting a full story soup to nuts. And I hope to make this a recurring thing because these are a lot of fun. And while they are true crime and crimes are being committed and yes, people are dying, it's a cemetery podcast. You knew that was coming. So I hope to make this a regular feature because I came across just an astonishing amount of stories of shenanigans that people get up to in cemeteries. But this one is a good place to start because it not only involves a cemetery sexton, but just the way that the discussion of death and the discussion of politics of bodies and all of these things comes across in the newspaper articles to me was one of the most interesting things about this and today people still have a very contentious relationship with the dead and with respecting the dead and with the way that the dead are treated and when you read these type of articles you realize where some of this comes from because even in an increasingly secular society there is still an underlying history to this So I thought this was pretty interesting. Hopefully you will find it to be interesting as well. Obviously, I know that there is a huge contingency of podcast listeners who are very into true crime. And I would say that I'm somewhere in the middle. I think it's interesting, but I also am not one of those people. Like, I will listen gladly to 50 other topics in addition to true crime. I know there are some people who only listen to true crime. So like I said, I'm somewhere in the middle. Like everybody else, my journey into the world of podcasts started with Serial. So I think that all of us definitely have an appreciation for these type of things. 
Uh, I'm going to be taking this back a little bit further. A lot of these crimes are a little bit older, and this one in particular does. Um, And again, it's a very interesting snapshot of a time and a place in America. So without further ado, I'm going to tell you a haunting little tale. So we need to go back to the 30s. Specifically, we need to go back to April 10th, 1936. I'm going to fast forward a little bit to this first newspaper article, which is entitled Ruddy Pictures Seen at Gallagher's Home. Cemetery worker finds Lehman staggering, goes to pick up Gallagher and finds him dead. Michael J. Gallagher, Hanover Township school director and caretaker of St. Mary's Cemetery for the last 30 years, was blown to pieces by the infernal machine shortly after he returned home after a business trip to the city and a visit with his son, Dr. Charles M. Gallagher of Hazel Street, Hanover Township. Clinton Lehman, 38, Mr. Gallagher's son-in-law and teacher at the Hanover Township Memorial Senior High School, helped Mr. Gallagher open the bomb. He was also severely injured by the explosion, and serious impairment of both eyes was regarded as probable by physicians. Mr. Gallagher was killed and his son-in-law injured in the second of yesterday's explosions of bombs sent through the mails. About two hours earlier, Thomas Maloney, who was president of the defunct United Anthracite Miners of Pennsylvania, his son and daughter were all severely injured in the explosion of another bomb. Mr. Gallagher, with Clark Eckert of 1437 South Main Street, Hanover Township, an employee of St. Mary's Cemetery, came to the central part of the city on business yesterday morning, and on the way back, stopped at the home of Mr. Gallagher in the Newtown section of the city. They reached the rear of the Gallagher home on Middle Road, Hanover Township, postal address, Box 347, RD1, about 1215. Eckert and Gallagher told him to go home and get something to eat before returning for the afternoon's work. And at that point, Gallagher entered the basement kitchen of his home. Lehman Eckert said that this was where the Gallagher residence kitchen was and stayed with Lehman's children, Charles and Donald, who were playing on the premises. Shortly after Gallagher joined Lehman in the kitchen, Lehman's son Charles, seven, entered and gave his father a package, which he had found in the mailbox along the road in front of the Gallagher home. William Ruddy of 16 East Liberty Street, Hanover Township, another cemetery worker, reported this. Ruddy was eating his lunch in a shanty about 50 yards from the rear of the Gallagher home and said that the explosion occurred several minutes after Gallagher left Eckert and entered the basement kitchen. When he heard the noise, Ruddy said he ran to the rear of the home and he found Lehman staggering around the boil room in a small hall across from the kitchen, where the door had been blown off by the force of the explosion. He said Lehman's head, face, and chest were bleeding, and that the victim was crying as to the whereabouts of his children, Charles and Donald. Ruddy said he helped Lehman to the outside and that Lehman wanted him to wipe the blood from his eyes, but he refused to do so because of the possibility of causing further injury. Mercy Hospital attaches, attaches said last night, quote, it will be 48 hours before the physicians will be able to determine the extent of eye injuries suffered by Lehman and whether or not his sight will be permanently impaired. When he entered the kitchen, 
Ruddy said he saw Mr. Gallagher, badly mutilated, lying in a corner. Thinking he was only injured, Ruddy said he attempted to pick him up, but found that he was already dead. Running to the gasoline station at the intersection of Middle Road and St. Mary's Crossroad, Ruddy obtained an automobile and returned to take Lehman to Mercy Hospital. In the meantime, Clark Eckert and another cemetery employee, Thomas McDade, arrived at the Gallagher home and learned that Mr. Gallagher was dead. Dr. Charles Gallagher, the son, heard the explosion at his father's home on his way to Middle Road and met a highway patrolman on St. Mary's Cross Road and took him to his father's house. They then notified the police sergeant, Conley, of Hanover Township, who was the first to arrive, and he was subsequently joined by state trippers and county detectives. They sent the Lehman children to the home of another son-in-law, Martin Breslin, of South Main Street, Lee Park. Ruddy said that on the way to Mercy Hospital, Lehman told him that Charles Lehman, 7, had found the package in a roadside mailbox where the mail is deposited because Mr. Gallagher lives along a rural route. The son gave the package to the father, but when Lehman saw it was addressed to Mr. Gallagher, he handed it over to the caretaker of the cemetery, Ruddy reported. Lehman saw his father-in-law was struggling to open the package and went over to the table to help him, according to Ruddy. As the lid of the cigar box opened, the bomb exploded. Authorities think Mr. Gallagher was holding it about level with his waist since the explosion tore away most of the upper part of his body. The Lehman children had gone from the kitchen to the outside before the bomb exploded, Ruddy confirmed. The deadly package was deposited in the Gallagher mailbox yesterday morning at 11.45, and it was announced by Roy Kinchner, 38, of 390 Chestnut Street, Kingston, that he was the carrier along rural D1. Kitchener said he was positive that the package was addressed to Michael Gallagher, but he was not sure what address the package contained. All right, so that gives you a little bit of background. I know there's a lot of names in there, so I don't want to confuse you too much. But this gives you a basic account of what happened. So all of this is happening on Good Friday, 1936. So Friday, April 10th. What happens is in Hanover Township, which is a small township near Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania, there are six bombs that are delivered to different individuals. Now, the interesting thing is, is that one of the people killed is a cemetery sexton. However, what first attracted me to this was an article that I had found, as I already mentioned, back when I was actually looking at this. So this happens in Wilkes Bar. So the majority of these are going to be from the local Wilkes Bar paper. Um, most of them the evening news. But the original article I actually found was from Scranton, of all places. And this particular article says the Scranton Times, Saturday, April 11th, 1936. And it just was a picture of the house. And it says where Hanover Cemetery caretaker was killed by the blast. And it has two pictures. One is like a zoomed out view. And then the other one is like a close up of the house. And it says, quote, these views show crowds and investigators at the Hanover Township home of Michael Gallagher, St. Mary's Cemetery caretaker, who was killed by a nitroglycerin bomb. The right panel shows Monsignor J.J. Curran, Assistant District Attorney John J. Dando, and investigators outside the sub-cellar kitchen where Gallagher was killed. 
note the shattered windows. The explosive, which killed the cemetery caretaker, is believed to have been meant for a union auditor named Gallagher. Police suspect that the bomb reached the home of the cemetery official through a mistake. The man killed by the bomb was never active in Miners Union affairs, but for years had been active in local Hanover Township politics. So, the cemetery caretaker appears to be an innocent party in all of this. So, this entire kerfuffle essentially starts over the fact that bombs are being delivered to people who have an association with a now-defunct union. And this was the United Anthracite Miners of Pennsylvania. So now, if you are not familiar with anthracite, anthracite is the type of coal that is found in abundance in Pennsylvania. Uh, Anthracite is a very hard form of coal, and at first they didn't quite know what to do with it, but by using different types of blast furnaces that inject oxygen, which makes them burn really hot... Anthracite was able to be one of the abundant forms of coal that was used in the 19th century. And this is what makes Pennsylvania famous. Wilkes-Barre, this entire area in northeastern Pennsylvania, is well known for its coal mining. So, Gallagher is not actually the first person killed, and you might have missed it because there was a brief mention. The first person who was, or the first group of people who were actually affected was a family named Maloney. Now, Thomas Maloney Sr. was a leader in the Independent Mine Union, which is now defunct. He received a similar package. All of these packages are essentially cigar boxes. And these cigar boxes are rigged to explode when you pry the lid open. Now, because this was Good Friday, many people saw these deliveries and they assumed it was some sort of gift or some sort of treat that had been sent to them to celebrate Easter. This is one of the most obnoxiously Catholic stories. If you are, if you were not raised Catholic, if you didn't grow up in a Catholic community, a lot of this may seem very confusing to you. As somebody who grew up in a very Catholic area, it makes perfect sense to me. But if you're a little confused, they're very Catholic. That's all I can tell you. Um, so the assumption was that these were gifts. And so Thomas Sr. is brought this package And he is in the kitchen, likewise, with his young son, Tommy, Thomas Jr., age four, and his daughter, Margaret, 16, when the bomb explodes. Tommy Jr. dies the following day on Saturday, the April 11th. Thomas Maloney Sr. will die five days later. Margaret will spend several months in the hospital. She loses one eye and is almost completely blinded. Just absolutely devastating effects. And then, as I already read, shortly after this, Michael Gallagher mistakenly receives this because it was supposed to go to another man named Michael Gallagher. Like I said, Irish Catholic as you can get. There was some confusion. He get this bomb by accident, even though he was never involved in coal mining or any of that. The other individuals who are sent these bombs all have something to do with mining. So Luther Niffen, who is the former Wilkes-Barre sheriff, also receives a bomb. Harry Goulstone, Goulstone, really, you can't make this stuff up on a cemetery podcast, um, was a major 
coal official. He actually received a bomb and was able to defuse it by putting it in a bucket of water. Um, Judge B.R. Jones, um, he received one as well. He had his bomb intercepted at the post office. Once they knew that they were out there, they were able to stop it. Um, James M. Gorman, who was the chairman of the labor board, he was on vacation in Florida, so he was not impacted by the bomb that was sent to him. So all of these people get very lucky. So out of the six bombs, only two of them end up exploding. But when they explode, they essentially maim two individuals and they kill three. Now, nobody realizes this is all union motivated to begin with. It's You can imagine how terrifying this is. There is literally just explosions happening and nobody understands exactly why these things are occurring. And when you read the newspaper coverage, so incredibly tragic. So these are going to be from Monday, April 13th. So following Easter, this is the following Monday. So the first article is Mrs. Maloney leaves sickbed to attend rights for young son. Wife, bewildered by death of boy, is reconciled if husband passes away, now with eyes gone and arm torn off. Woman gives interview to news. Oh God, perhaps it is better that he go. My Tom would not harm a soul. He didn't believe there were such people in the world. He cannot see. His arms are gone. What a crucifixion. Oh God, my baby boy. Sweet little innocent Tommy, his black hair, his blue eyes, dressed in an Easter suit that he will wear forever. Just like Leon did seven years ago last Thursday, Holy Thursday, who was dressed in a new Easter suit when God called him away. A frail, courageous woman with charity in her heart was Mrs. Elizabeth Maloney as she spoke these words in an interview shortly before news today at the homeopathic hospital where her husband, Thomas Maloney, ex-president of the now-defunct Anthracite Miners Union, and her 16-year-old daughter, Margaret, lay hovering in pain, victims of a mail bombing that stamps last Friday as Black Friday for this valley. The woman a native German whose life has been dotted by the horror of war and labor strife, a little girl, the youngest of a family of 13, who saw five brothers march off. There's a little bit of drama here, just in case you couldn't tell. To war. Two of them to devise of a death machine and died nearly a year ago. Today, she is equally as heroic, and perhaps more so. As a mother and a wife, her heart is torn at the device of the death machine that has taken her own flesh and blood. Mrs. Maloney, with her husband's brother John and Dr. Max Tischler, family physician, had just left the bedside of Margaret Maloney when the evening news interviewer met them. She walked in a daze, her tragic blue eyes looking to visualize the picture that was death-dealing and home-destroying, trying so bravely through the mist, lifted by the tears that had dug deep rivulets into the cheeks that once boasted a girlish bloom. Leaning upon the arms of her kind escorts, she was on her way to the hospital. She is a brave woman, said Dr. Tischler, as he called us to one side. It was pathetic to hear her at the bedside of her husband and little girl. She continued to tell them to be brave, to be good. So this gives you just an idea. So all of this is happening very quickly. So the deaths 
start occurring on Friday, and by Monday, we're already having funerals. Again, this is an age when funerals happen pretty quickly. So the funeral for both the little boy who was killed and for Michael Gallagher both occur on Monday the 13th, which also, just for added fun, happens to be Michael Gallagher's birthday. So a little history on Mr. Gallagher. So Mr. Gallagher is born April 13th, 1871. So he is killed just before his 66th birthday. He was born in Ireland before moving to Pennsylvania. So a brief glance at his death certificate. So he was married. His wife's name is Anna. And you can definitely see that there's a certain amount of shock in the description. Cause of death was as follows. Bomb explosion causing avulsion of entire body, exclamation point. Contributing bomb sent by some person or persons unknown. So when they say he was blown in half, he was blown in half. Um, Likewise, I think you can tell from the description of what happened to young Thomas Maloney, like, the father, you know, his eyes are completely blasted out. He has no arms left. Like, this is some horrific stuff. Absolutely horrific stuff. Now, we have this funeral occurring on the birthday, on the 66th birthday. So I will read to you a little bit about this funeral. And there is the, on the front page, there's actually a picture of the funeral Heads were bared today as the body of Michael Gallagher, sexton of St. Mary's Cemetery in Hanover Township, school director, was removed from his home on Middle Road for services at St. Aloysius Church. Tribute paid, M.J. Gallagher, bomb victim, impressive services for cemetery sexton and Hanover director. Funeral on birthday. In the peaceful setting of St. Mary's Cemetery, within which he served for 30 years as sexton, Michael Gallagher, first victim of the nefarious Good Friday bombings, was laid to rest today on his birthday in a plot just 200 yards away from the family home where he was blown to pieces. Honored and respected in life, Mr. Gallagher was paid a stirring tribute at the funeral services this morning, which were attended by hundreds of persons, practically all of them personal friends of the man who was the target of a fiendish brain. Despite the hundreds who crowded the lawn of the home, observers were unable to single out any curiosity seekers, and the services were conducted from the beginning to the end in a quiet, orderly, and dignified manner that marked Mr. Gallagher's life. The sympathy of hundreds of mourners today went out to Mrs. Gallagher, wife of the victim, and to his daughter, Mrs. Clinton Lehman, wife of the other victim, who was injured in the explosion that claimed his father-in-law's life. Mrs. Gallagher is still suffering from shock and had to depend on her two sons, Dr. Charles Gallagher and James Gallagher, as she left home behind the corpse and she entered St. Aloysius' church for the Requiem funeral mass. Despite her grief, Mrs. Lehman bore up courageously well. The body was met at the rear of the vestibule by the very Reverend D.W. McCarthy, Pastor Reverend J.J. O'Connell, Master of Ceremonies, etc., etc. There were lots of priests there. This is one of the few times that the body was met at the rear of the church and was considered a tribute to the devout nature of the deceased. Father McCarthy was the celebrant of the solemn high requiem mass. More and more Catholic, more and more Catholic. You guys don't really need to hear that. 
Before the body of Mr. Gallagher left the home, the church was nearly filled, and as Father McCarthy started Mass, every available seat was taken. The church has a normal seating capacity of 1,800, and it was estimated that between five and 600 persons were jammed into the vestibule and standing in the aisles. Unlike many other funerals where weeping and crying prevails, today's service was calm and sincere, a tribute to a man who was considered an ideal neighbor and a highly respected official. The mourners represented all political and religious creeds. Protestant, Jew, and Catholic shared the same pew during the Mass. There were school teachers, doctors, lawyers, and hundreds of average working persons in attendance. As the body was leaving the home, every man's hat was removed despite the cold that gripped the mourners who were unable to gain entrance to the house. The home was besieged with mourners hours before the time for the funeral, and cars were stationed along Middle Road as far as one could see. Traffic at St. Mary's Road and South Main Street was diverted by Hanover Township Police, who capably handled the situation. As the pallbearers started the procession by the two cars filled with beautiful floral tributes, including those that were given over by individual schools from Hanover Township, police fellow members of the board, and dozens from friends. There was no sermon at the Mass, and as the body was blessed for the last time in the church, the mourners followed the members of the family, and within 20 minutes, Mr. Gallagher was laid to rest in a plot he himself had selected many years ago. The final benediction was proclaimed loudly by Reverend Father Mulligan, assisted by two other officials of the Mass. Um, and again, they list, this was like a who's who of priests. There's like a paragraph and a half of priest names. And they also give a list of the honorary pallbearers. So I read you that description because it gives you an idea of just how much pomp and circumstance went into these particular funerals. And also, I think it really speaks to, even in the 1930s, just the extreme levels of mourning culture. Now, I cannot tell because I have not been to the cemetery. It does not appear that Michael Gallagher has a headstone. He may. I don't know. St. Mary's is quite a large cemetery. Um, He is listed on Find a Grave, and they certainly list his association and how he died and everything like that. But I don't know. I also don't know exactly where his house was in the scheme of the cemetery. So I would be curious because if I could figure out where the house was, it's only 200 yards away. So that would be a pretty good indicator. Also, find a grave is far from perfect, as we all know. So, this takes us to the next question. Who did this? Well, that's something I'm going to leave up to you to decide. I'm going to tell you what happens next. And what happens next is that they do find the person who supposedly did this. But I'm going to give you the evidence, and I'm going to let you decide if you think he was guilty. So, the suspect who is arrested in this particular case, is a man named Michael Fugman, F-U-G-M-A-N-N, age 52, who also lives in Hanover Township. He is described as a colliery worker and former German artilleryman, which I had never heard colliery used in this particular sense, but this means a coal miner. So, he was a German artilleryman in World War I, which, I'm not going to lie, when you read the accounts of this, there is definitely a prejudice against him because he was part of the opposing side during the war, the same way that there is a lot of sympathy for, say, Mrs. Maloney as a German woman who lost multiple brothers during the war. 
it goes both ways. Let's put it that way. So he is born in Germany and he and his wife both immigrate there. So he is born in 1884. His wife is born in 1891. Her name is Cuny, K-U-N-I. And they have a daughter named Anna who was born in 1919, just after the end of World War One. So in his capacity living in the greater Wilkes-Barre area, he is a coal miner and he is very involved with the United Anthracite Miners of Pennsylvania. And he is extremely upset with this particular organization, which, as I already mentioned, is defunct by the time the bombings happen. And the frustration comes over their inability to hold the coal mining companies accountable. If you know anything about union history, this is not exactly an easily accomplished thing. And part of this is that he has donated quite a bit of money to the union, thinking that it will help to improve conditions in the mines. And when he does not see that, there is a great deal of frustration that builds up. Hence, the targets all being closely associated with either the United Anthracite Miners of Pennsylvania, which is now defunct, or the larger national coal mining organization that they are a subsector of. Now, what is the overwhelming information that leads to his arrest? Well, there's a couple of things. Part of it is that he does have a relationship with a lot of the individuals who end up being involved in the bombings, mainly by virtue of the fact that he was involved in union activities. However, the biggest and most damning piece of information is that they are able to match his handwriting to that on the bombs. Noted handwriting expert says that the writing on the death packages compared with samples gained of Fugman's penmanship, both before and after his arrest. So, flashing forward to September 25th, Albert D. Osborne, internationally famous handwriting expert, today named Michael Fugman, 52 of Old Hanover Township, as the person who printed the names and addresses on the wrappers enclosing the cigar box palm packages, which were mailed on the eve of Good Friday. Taking the witness stand at 2.35 o'clock this afternoon after the Commonwealth had spent most of the day putting into evidence dozens of specimens of Fugman's handwriting obtained by state police, postal inspectors, and immigration officers, Osborne unreservedly expressed the opinion that the person who printed the samples introduced as Fugman's writing was the same person who used a pencil in printing the names and addresses on at least five of the six bomb parcels in the Easter gift outreach. Now, keep in mind, a lot of these were either intercepted or diffused before they exploded, so they did have these actual pieces of evidence. The wrapping of the sixth lethal package was never recovered. That was the bomb which exploded and caused the death of Michael Gallagher, 75-year-old Hanover Township Cemetery Sexton. The first of the ace witnesses, Osborne, marshaled by the Commonwealth in its attempt to send Fugman to his death in the electric chair for the murder of Thomas Maloney Sr., one of the three victims of the bomb plot, had testified to examining, photographed, and analyzed the pencil printing on the bomb package wrappers and the specimens of Fugman's writing obtained by authorities both before and after his arrest. 
His testimony delayed somewhat by the persistent objection of attorney Edward McGovern, Fugman's counsel, that the only printing on the fragments of paper found in the Maloney home after the blast should be allowed as evidence. So this is a big point of contention. He is never put on trial for the death of Thomas Jr. or for Michael Gallagher. He is only put on trial for Thomas Maloney Sr.'s death. And because that bomb was only only existed in fragments after the explosion, they're saying that that's the only one that you can really look at. You can't compare it to the other six bombs because there's not evidence tying them all together. The question was posed, what is your opinion as the identity of the writers of these exhibits, the specimens of printing and writing, as compared with the identity of the writer from the other exhibits? Again, McGovern protested. Judge Samuel E. Shule Schroudersberg, especially presiding at the trial, asked Fugman's counsel as he wished to examine. District Attorney Schwartz repeated the question, and McGovern asked, if arriving at the opinion, anything other than the exhibit's had been introduced. The expert said he had considered nothing else. He said, in my judgment, the one who printed these specimens, referring to the samples of Fugman's handwriting obtained from the latter by the police, is the same person who printed the four wrappers and the pieces of the Maloney wrapper. Osborne has been an expert in an examiner of writings for the past 15 years. In 1935 alone, he has appeared in court on 40 separate cases. So this evidence right here is by far the most damning. This is what is really going to kind of color the opinion of pretty much everything. At the Fugman home today, a distracted wife and daughter were visited by neighbors who gathered to console them. Mrs. Fugman, with a streak of gray in her hair, attired in a house dress of a conservative pattern, denied all knowledge of any apparent implication that her husband had in the bombings. The little girl, just 16 years old and unusually bright, was at her mother's side constantly. The daughter, the daughter her high school teachers today revealed, won the oratorical contest at the high school several weeks ago. Again, they, they put useless information. Oh, she's very, she has oratorical skill. There you go. You don't think that my husband would kill for $500, his wife asked an evening news interviewer this morning. Why, he wouldn't kill a chicken and certainly wouldn't take the life of his friends. She concluded with a Teutonic accent. Like I said, there's a lot of German prejudice in all of this. The Maloneys were our friends. My husband gave money to Mr. Maloney, $505, and he paid us back 45 she said that the two families visited each other for some time. She said that her husband worked at the Inman shaft of the Buttonwood Colliery in Glen Alden Coal Company. He first met Maloney, she said, when the new union began. He drove him every place in his car. She intimated that the mine leader became disgruntled when Mr. Fugman recognized the cause of the new union was lost and returned to his work back there. She explained that Mr. Fugman went to the Maloney home in Georgetown, and as her daughter explained, they later visited the hospital. She said Mrs. Fugman, as well as her husband, were indisposed for several days. The Fugmans attended the funeral of Maloney's son at the McLaughlin's funeral home in this city and were at St. Mary's Cemetery, where the mine leader was laid to rest. Mrs. Fugman said her husband was on friendly terms with Mr. Gallagher, their neighbor, who was also instantly killed with one of the bombs, which explained also exploded maiming Clinton Lehman, his son-in-law, and one of the township high school teachers, where their daughter Anna attended classes. 
The wife said she did not visit the Gallagher home during their bereavement, but said that her husband did and was so taken back by the ghastly scenes that he advised his wife and neighbors not to look upon Mr. Gallagher in death. Mrs. Oshinsky quoted Mr. Fugman as having said it. It is terrible. I wish I had not gone to see Mike Gallagher. My man is a good man, she continued. He never opened his pay envelope in all the years that we have been married. At this point, Mrs. Mary Oshinsky, the wife of the gasoline attendant at 62 St. Mary's Road, said Mr. Fugman had consulted her and her husband as to the wisdom of returning to work at the old union. He said, I am getting older, Mrs. Oshinsky, and if I cannot find work, Maloney cannot give me any work, and quoted as having asked advice of the labor union. Little Anna, the student sitting in on the interview, said her father had advised her to go offer blood transfusions to save Maloney's life. Mr. Maloney's sister, Mrs. Kennedy, called on us, said the little girl. My father and me went to the hospital to give a transfusion, but they said they had enough because Mr. Maloney's cousin and uncle had already given blood. Oh, I don't know why they do this to my husband, moaned his wife. As she gazed towards the piano, upon which rested an excellent likeness of Maloney and the five-year-old boy who were victims of the bombs. Okay, so all of this, it just sounds incredibly surreal. It appears that he had worked closely with Maloney in setting up this entire union and that he had actually thrown quite a bit of money into it. Maloney had encouraged him, hey, quit your job as a coal miner. Like, don't go back to work in the shaft until they satisfy your demands. Like, you're giving in to them. But as somebody who was getting older, somebody who needed work, he was like, I have to go back to work. And so there was this tug and pull. So there is an argument over money, over the failure of the coal mine to do what it's supposed to do. And then lastly, they finished with this. Mrs. Fugue may explain that her husband some years ago applied to become a citizen and that Mr. Maloney was looking after the papers for him. She added that Fugman, whose second wife she is, having married him in Germany 18 years ago, settled in Lee Park. She said that three years later, she and her daughter came upon the section. Her husband, who applied for papers, but when his son Adam, age 26, had been injured in a mine mishap four years ago, completing the application for citizenship. She explained that these injuries and ailments of the son, which cost them considerable money, made her husband forget anything else. There is undoubtedly a lot of racism going on here, and there is an underlying kind of divide between them. I will say... Not only his wife and his daughter, but Fugman himself, he maintains his innocence. In prison, a lot of things go on. So, for example, he goes on a hunger strike at one point. There's a lot that happens when he is in prison. So, on August 4th, 1937, former colliery worker awaits execution for Easter gift deaths. Wilkes-Barre, PA. Poker face Michael Fugman, colliery worker and one-time German artilleryman, is awaiting execution for the 1935 Easter gift bomb slaying of three persons. He finally consented to eat today, the first since he went on a hunger strike a week ago. A German preacher, one of the few visitors that Fugman had seen since he was sentenced a year ago, preceded him, preceded to, persuaded him to break his fast. They talked nearly an hour last night. Since early last week, the prisoner had turned his back on jail attendants who brought him food. He pushed his tray back to them yesterday, despite the pleadings of both his wife and daughter. 
Fugman has stoutly denied the state's charge that he sent homemade dynamite bombs wrapped to resemble Easter gifts to a number of Wyoming Valley residents more than two years ago. It was Good Friday. The collieries were closed. The package was received at the home of Thomas Maloney leader, etc., etc. You already know the story. So he is denying that he had anything to do with this. The major... So it seems that the major piece is the handwriting. But that being said, there also is an abundance of evidence that there was circumstantial evidence tying him to all of these individuals and that he was certainly disgruntled with what had happened. Regardless, he is convicted and he is sentenced to die in the electric chair. So he is going to be sent first to a separate prison, which is where the um, death house is in Western PA. And he is becoming part of um, this whole kind of drama that's going on. But he definitely, he denies it right up until the very end. So he will eventually go to his death on July 18th, 1938, a little over three years after this. I must pay for a crime I did not commit, he says. Death House of Western Pennsylvania Rockview, July 18th. Protesting his innocence until his last breath was choked out by 2,000 volts of electricity. Michael Fugman, 52-year-old Hanover Township miner, today paid with his life for the three 1936 Good Friday postal deaths in the electric chair. Two years, not three years. Sorry, I'm miscounting. Dressed in a white woolen undershirt and dark trousers, he was brought to the death chamber at approximately 12.30 a.m., he was pronounced dead at 12.34 by Dr. William J. Schwartz, official prison physician. From the moment he stepped into the death chamber, Fugman kept repeating, I must pay with my life for a crime I did not commit. Six times he made the statement, and he was on the 7th, when Robert Elliott, official executioner, threw the switch, and Fugman's body went against the straps. There was not another sound in the room, only the whirring of current could be heard as Fugman's stiffened body seemed as though it would burst from the leather straps holding him to the old wooden chair. Like a character from one of Shakespeare's plays, Fugman entered the room as calmly and conducted himself with the same alacrity since the day he was arrested nearly two years ago. He needed no assistance and walked towards the chair alone. As he stood at the chair, making his protestations of innocence, guards hardly tied his legs and arms, making sure the shoulder straps were secure. A few seconds before 1231, Elliot turned on the current. Standing in front of Fugman was Reverend F.P. McCreesh, Catholic chaplain of the penitentiary. He recited the prayers for the dying from a small black prayer book, dressed in surplus and cassock. Father McCreesh, as soon as Elliot signaled that the job had been finished, stepped up to Fugman and gave him the sacrament of extreme unction. He rubbed the reddened chest with his oil and cotton and quickly left the death room. After Fugman had pronounced, been pronounced dead by Dr. Schwartz, Warden Stanley P. Ash called newspaper reporters to one side and that Fugman had asked him to make the following announcement. Quote, I hold no malice or hard feelings towards anyone connected with the case. Mr. Ash said Fugman also asked him to make another announcement, but reminded reporters that he did it himself from the time that he entered the death room until his soul was separated from his body. Fugman was not an impatient or excited in any way. His statements were clearly and thorough and thought through in the chamber. Even when Elliot was putting the brown leather mask over his face, he continued to move his lips. 
Okay. So this execution is interesting in a number of ways because first we get that full account, which that in and of itself is pretty dramatic. But then they give a parallel story of what happens with his wife and daughter. Wife and daughter in a state of collapse at home. Body returned here. A devotion to a husband and father who died in the electric chair at Rockview today commanded more than its pound of flesh in the desolate home of Michael Fugman on Oaklawn Avenue in Hanover Township. Breaking at 12.30 a.m. today when their husband and father was hurled into eternity, Mrs. Cuny Fugman and her daughter Anna were in a serious state of collapse. Wide-eyed and hysterical, Mrs. Fugman looked like a person who had been snatched from death herself at the same time. It appeared as though death itself would be a welcome relief from the misery of the past 48 hours. Anna was practically unconscious on the divan in the front room of the home. From the indication, one would think that she herself had gone to eternity. She did not hear the words of a kind neighbor who tried to pour them into her ears. She laid flat on her back. There was no color in her face. Her arms hung limply over the side of the couch. Mrs. Fugman was asked if she had decided about the funeral plans for her husband. Her only answer was, I don't know anything. They took my good man from me. With that, she dropped into a coma without so much as closing her eyes. She heard nothing. She saw nothing except the miserable picture of her husband wriggling in the electric chair. The house itself was one that had been tarnished by tragedy. Two women, neighbors of the family, were washing dishes in the kitchen. They tried to be as kind as possible. Their efforts were wasted. Slumped in a bed in the middle of the first floor, Mrs. Fugman only moaned and whimpered, My poor man. Pathetic because of her youth and the cross she must carry through her entire life, Anna's only hysteria brought her wearied rain and body the rest of sedatives could not give. There would be a long time before she would be normal. The shock of allowing emotions crystallizing for two years, breaking at once. There was no relief, only the coma. A young CCC boy held an ice pack over her forehead. For all that she knew or cared, it might have been a lighted torch. Okay, it goes on from there. This is the interesting part. The body arrives here. The body of Fugman was removed this afternoon to the J. Emmett Brislin Funeral Home, 15 West West Hollingback Avenue, City, from the penitentiary. Only a shell, as all the vital organs, including the brain, were removed. Um, They did perform an autopsy at the prison. I read an article about that, too. We don't really need to know those details. Um... The body will remain at the Brislin parlors until funeral arrangements are completed. Mrs. Fugman was in a state of collapse and consequently unable to make any arrangements. She refused to discuss the arrangements before Fugman died in the chair, hoping against hope that some last-minute stay would save his life temporarily at least. Mr. Brislin is expecting to confirm with Mrs. Fugman tonight in an effort to make definitive arrangements. In view of the fact that Fugman died with the last rites of the Catholic Church, a possibility exists that he may in fact be buried in St. Mary's Cemetery near the three victims who were killed by the bombs. So uh, Fugman also, there's a small note here that says that Fugman is the 268th die in the electric chair. It was disclosed by Warden Stanley P. Ash after he had been executed. When Fugman was placed in the death house on Saturday, he was assigned number 344. So just another fun fact about executions in Pennsylvania, just in case you should be curious. Now, the following day, 
the conclusion of this cemetery story, I, I think it's worth noting. So, J. Emmett Brislin, funeral director, said that it has been tentatively arranged to have the body cremated after services at 3.30 Wednesday afternoon in the Brislin Funeral Home, 15 West Hollenbeck Avenue. Though cremation is prohibited by the laws of the Catholic Church, which Fugman embraced shortly before he went to his death, the funeral director has said that Mrs. Fugman has asked that the body be disposed of in a manner made out to him in an unwritten request by him to her. By the tentative arrangements, Reverend W.A.E. Shrew probably will officiate at the services. The body will be taken to the crematorium at Maple Hill Cemetery. Mrs. Fugman has asked that the ashes be placed in a niche in the mausoleum of the Maple Hill Cemetery, where the ashes of a son, Adam, were also placed. Now, you remember that Adam was the one who had been severely injured in the coal mining accident. The cemetery is near the Fugman home in Hanover Township. The wife and child entered the funeral home about 8 and left shortly after 9. Both had to be aided to and from the home, and when she was leaving, Anna collapsed in a machine in which she was riding. I'm assuming that's either a car or a bicycle. Not really sure. Three members of the 109th Field Artillery in uniform took them to the home and consoled them during the time that they were there. A friend, Reverend E. Park Brown, associated with Luzerne County Prison, comforted Mrs. Fugman. The latter appeared speechless from exhaustion, except for the brief moments when she would break into a high-voiced chant, declaring, you were innocent and they killed you. Speak to me, speak to me, she pleaded when they entered the room where the body lies. You were a good daddy, she said once while she wept. Wow. Uh, Curious throngs waited throughout the afternoon to get a view of the body, but it was not prepared until 6.30. The crowd had thinned out by nightfall, and some of those who viewed the body passed through the room while the widow and her daughter sat silently. Mr. Brislin announced that the funeral services would be private on Wednesday afternoon and that the body can be viewed from 1 to 5 today and until noon on Wednesday. So... This whole situation is fascinating, and that's one of the reasons I chose this. It might seem like there's not a lot to do with cemeteries in this particular case, but it's just so odd that you have a cemetery sexton who is accidentally tied up in all of this. You have a very close-knit Catholic community where literally all of these people know each other. All of these people go to church together. All of these people are buried together. And then... As this death occurs, you suddenly have this man who is an undesirable, who everyone believes is guilty, despite his protestations that he is innocent. And then he goes back and he becomes a Catholic, even though he wasn't raised Catholic, might end up buried next to them. And there's all of this controversy, even though he becomes Catholic, he has to be cremated. I think that the whole thing is fascinating because it looks at things that we think are very archaic. Like a lot of this language, it probably seems archaic. Certainly, you can tell I get a little tongue-tied when I read these because the language is very flowery. They were getting paid by the word. They had to have been. But also, it's just fascinating to see this whole story unfold sort of with the backdrop of a cemetery. And the idea that eventually he has to end up being cremated because of the controversial nature of things. Um, And I did find Mr. Fugman's death certificate as well. And it does, in fact, say death by electrocution. 
and they cite the full fact that it's an execution and all of that stuff. So it's fascinating. Um, certainly, I think it's also interesting, the whole idea of the politics of his body, you know, where they get to take his vital organs to see if they can find anything about him, particularly looking at his brain and things like that. It's a weird, macabre little story. Probably not the best episode I've ever done in terms of research or things like that. But I think that in terms of true crime, it's an interesting one. Um, feel free to look more into it. You certainly can find plenty out there about this case. It was very well documented. I have a hard time with this one. Um, my gut reaction is to say that he probably did it. He is a real, real cold fish. There are lots of photos of him literally sitting around like in three-piece suits, smoking cigars throughout the whole thing. The other interesting thing is, is that, so his wife, CUNY, she lives until 1986, and his daughter, Anna, she died in 2013. So even though this is from the 30s, which is almost a century ago now, there were still some players in this entire saga who were around within the last decade. You know, his daughter died less than a decade ago. So I thought this was also an interesting case. And I mean, I guess maybe I should be slightly more sensitive um, considering I don't know if he has grandchildren. Um, I know Anna was married to a man named Richard Hurst, um, but it doesn't, I don't know if they had children. Maybe they did. I think that as I get to the end of this, I think I've come to the conclusion I think he probably did do it. I think that there was a lot of hard feelings about this, and I think a lot of it probably was in looking for revenge for what had happened to his son, Adam, and I think that there was a lot of probably dark feelings about that, but man, like I said, he was a cold fish right up and protested his innocence right up until the very end, but Certainly, if you want to look into it yourself, those of you who are your armchair sleuths, feel free to, uh, because it's certainly an interesting story and definitely has a lot of weird twists and turns when it comes to cemeteries. We're almost at 100. Um, I have something special planned for the 100th episode, but unfortunately, it probably will not come out for two weeks. I have some family stuff going on that I need to deal with over the next week. So apologies for that, but I promise it will be worth the wait. Um, I have a really fun idea, something I'm really excited about to do for the hundredth episode. So for those of you who have stuck with me this long, thank you. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. So wait just a little bit longer and we'll have a, a fun hundredth episode celebration. As always, if you are enjoying the podcast, subscribe. So you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Also, follow along on social media, Tomb of the View podcast on both Facebook and Instagram for fun photos, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and if you do have the time and if you are enjoying the podcast, please, I would love a good five-star review. It does help make me much more searchable, makes it easier for the other Taffa files out there to track me down. And as always, if you need to get in touch with me for any reason, Tomb of the View podcast at gmail.com is a good and easy way to get a hold of me via email. But for now, have a wonderful weekend. I will see you next week. I'm Liz Clappin, and this is Tomb of the View.